Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Now on Food FM, you're listening to Bread and Butter with Caroline Kenyon. Caroline and her guests make sense of the world through food, from politics to farming, making and cooking. Online, on smart speakers and on Listen Again, this is Food FM. Good morning. I'm Caroline Kenyon, and it's my great pleasure to welcome you to the latest edition of Bread and Butter, where we talk about all things relating to food and basically anything that I want to know more about. I am so lucky and especially lucky to have a wonderful panel of guests today uh, in advance of National Cream Tea Day, because we are going to be talking about that great British institution, the cream tea. And my guests are Kimberly Wilson, um, known to many as finalist on the Great British Bake Off and also a psychologist. Lizzie Collingham, the notable food historian who knows so much about the history and culture of British food. And also Kit Kemp, the wonderful hotelier behind the Firmdale Group, who knows all about the great uh, passion for the British afternoon tea, not to say the cream tea. So welcome to you all. Thank you. Hi. Um, Lizzie, why don't we start with you? Tell us a little bit, what is this thing, this institution that we almost sort of worship religiously here, the afternoon tea that on very special occasions becomes the cream tea? Tell us about the origins of it. Well, the origins of afternoon tea are a little bit hazy. So um, you have a chap who writing a book in 1935 called All About Tea, William Uckers, he was called. And uh, he claims that it was Anna Maria, the Duchess of Bedford, the wife of the seventh Duke of Bedford, who was the inventor of afternoon tea. But this is just absolutely typical of those kinds of sort of early 20th century uh, hacks in a way, who kind of liked, they found a piece of evidence and then they labelled the person as the inventor of something. So it is true that she was staying, the, Anna Maria was staying in um, the Duke of Rutland's house, Belvoir, Belvoir Castle in Nottinghamshire, and she served all the ladies who were at the party afternoon tea at about five o'clock in her rooms, uh, made in, in her own tea kettle that she had there. And she said it was to deal with her sinking feeling that she got sort of between an early substantial breakfast and a very skimpy, skimpy lunch and a quite substantial dinner in the evening. And so that is supposed to be where afternoon tea comes from. But um, she was probably just going with the trend. Ladies had been serving tea in a very sort of feminine, domesticated setting for the gentlemen around a, one of those lovely mahogany tea tables with all the paraphernalia that went with making tea, so lovely Chinese teapots and cups and sugar bowls and tongs. They'd been doing this ever since the sort of 17th century, 18th century tea had been introduced by the East India Company. Once they, the, the British discovered how much they liked it, they started to send their own East India Company ships to, to China to pick up tea. So it became a very genteel kind of domesticated feminine uh, drink 
that you might drink with your breakfast in the morning. Quite often Sunday afternoons after divine service, there would be ladies would would have a tea party. It was often served after dinner as well. And of course, dinner time changes through the centuries. So Samuel Pepys had dinner at noon. And through the 18th century, it gets later and later and later until by the 19th century, there people are eating dinner at seven or eight. Lunch doesn't really come in. Lunch is seen as a kind of uh, rather slightly embarrassing meal that the working classes eat. And so uh, there's a long gap a day. And so quite often, the afternoon tea is sort of, tea gets left. Tea you would serve after dinner, but as dinner, dinner goes past tea time and tea gets stuck in the afternoon, I think. Some, some, a process like that happens, but it's gradual, it's, it's messy. There isn't an inventor of afternoon tea. That's so interesting, Lizzie. Thank you. And, and, and Tess, when, when did the cream tea come onto the horizon? Well, when did this gorgeous alliance between clotted cream and jam and the scone arise? Well, Basically, at tea time, we always think uh, of it as a, as a sort of sandwiches and cakes sort of uh, fair tea time. But really, quite often, the thing that was associated with tea was bread and butter, thin, very, very thinly cut, nice, fine, white bread which was a kind of treat, and uh, spread with butter. That would, was the conventional thing that you would eat with your, that would be served with tea. You find that in Cranford, they describe how tea gets served with bread and butter. And you'll find lots of references to that. So it's it's bread and butter. So it makes sense in a way that scones come to be associated with afternoon tea, because scones start off as a sort of a scone bread they're a kind of flat griddle bread and there's no leavening in scones of course they don't rise but once in the 1860s uh, baking powder starts to be commercially available you can put a spoonful in your scone bread mix and it makes it light and fluffy so it makes sense to then and you'd eat that with hot uh, hot and with butter so it makes sense that scones become associated with tea in a way Jam in the 17th century, Britain uh, or England rather, gets its own sugar colony in Barbados. And by the 1660s, Barbadian planters are sending a lot of sugar back to uh, England. So genteel ladies start to make uh, all kinds of preserves and pickles and biscuits and so on in their still rooms and so that's when preserves come in to the English diet and they're served after after dinner at the it, during the banqueting course which is seen as a kind of sweet savory but with a much more predominant sweet element to it and so preserves are very genteel food but by the by the 1870s suddenly the working classes are able to afford jam because they take 1874 that they repeal the sugar duties and so cheap sugar beet based sugar comes into britain and then the the market gardeners particularly around cambridge start putting their damaged strawberries and so on into in make into jam making factories and then cheap jam becomes available to the working classes. So that's how the three things sort of come together. And then, as far as I know, it's not really until, I mean, you get the first reference to a cream tea, I think, in a novel in the 60s. There isn't really that mention. Nobody really mentions cream tea. Clotted cream is just a Devonshire 
uh, it's a very specific uh, Devonshire, Cornwall, West Country sort of food. And they've learned to make, they, 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 they let the, the, the milk sit, the cream rises to the top, and then you boil the whole lot and you get a nice thick cream, 60% fat. And so it makes sense that in that area of the country, they use that instead of butter on their scones. And then eventually, this seems to have sort of taken off in, in Britain in the 70s 80s and become a sort of fashionable hotel sort of tea room kind of thing that was served and it's and it spreads then and becomes and now we think of it as sort of ubiquitous and and absolutely part of our tradition and we feel that it's been going on everybody's been eating cream teas since the year dot but it really is only I think a very widespread and very common thing for the last few decades. Lizzie, that's the most incredible, fascinating account. Kimberly and Kit, how much of that did you two know? Because I knew nothing of it. And now I'm going to look at a cream tea with completely different eyes and just understand how much politics and tax laws and all these sorts of things played a part in bringing the cream tea to, uh, well, as you say, sort of rather, almost rather sort of falsely, you know, um, becoming part of our sort of mythical heritage, but it's actually relatively recently. But so much beloved. Kimberly, now you bring together your amazing baking skills, but also your your uh, profession as a psychologist. What is it about a cream tea that makes everybody smile? If you said to somebody, you know, who's a bit down, would you like to come with me for a cream tea? You can see them, their mood lift and it just gives people so much pleasure. What do you think's going on there? I think it's, it's likely to be a combination of things, a combination of the physiological and then also the, the psychological. So if we think about the kind of constitutional parts of a cream tea, you have the scone, then the cream, and then the jam. And what you have here is actually quite a fantastic, as far as your brain is concerned, combination of fats and sugars. Um, and what I mean by that is that we evolved in uh, conditions in which calories and energy were hard to come by. But your brain is incredibly energy demanding. It's the most metabolically active organ in your body. It's churning through calories at a, a rate of knots. And, and so your brain is always constantly kind of suspicious that there might be a famine coming, essentially. <laughs> like We need to look out for opportunities to eat at all times. And we really value quite dense, uh, calorie dense sources of, of of energy, food sources, which is why we have this kind of innate preference for sweet, which, you know, the sweet flavor tells our brain that we've got a good source of carbohydrates and fat, because obviously fat is the most calorie dense uh, energy source. So there's a way in which on a physiological level, your brain says, oh, fantastic, we've got a good energy source here, this will make us feel good. And you have this kind of innate liking, it turns on uh, a kind of pleasure sensing part of our brains. But then from the psychological side, we like what we eat and we eat what we remember. And what I mean by that is that the things that you grew up eating, the flavor profiles that you grew up eating tend to be the things that you will eat for the rest of your life. Those are the patterns that become established and we tend to stick to those patterns. But often we also associate memories with food and cream teas, I think for most people, are associated with lovely times, right? Whether it's a holiday, a visit down to Cornwall, or it's an afternoon tea celebration, or it's a birthday party, or it's a summer picnic. You know, there are these lovely, warm, often very relaxed 
taste, soothing associations. And when you eat something, it's not just the food that's that's going in. Your brain is encoding all of the contextual information with that as well. So that if you grew up eating a cream tea on your summer holidays with your family, as an adult, when you eat one, there's a part of it that will bring back that memory for you. So it's that combination of the memory and the associations, the contextual information uh, with that physiological information that your brain is getting about this being a good energy source that makes it a kind of warm, nostalgic, kind of pleasurable food. Can I add to that? Because I think that there's something really uh, interesting about after afternoon tea was often associated, certainly in the early um, 20th century, with nursery tea. So mm. a chap called Arnold Palmer wrote a, a book called Movable Feast, which is terribly antiquated if you read it now. But he, he asked one of his correspondents, who was 88 in, 19, in 1939, I think. So she was writing about her um, memories of tea time when she was 10 in 1967 so I might have got eight, um, 1867 and she talked about how children were always served afternoon tea in the nursery when you would have your tea and your bread and butter and then you might get a slow slice of homemade cake maybe one biscuit there's a lovely memory by Ian Dunbar who was a doctor's uh, son in Kent in the 1930s he also remembers that every afternoon at about four o'clock 4 30 the maid would bring into the drawing room afternoon tea and he would be allowed in and have his but he always he could only have one slice of cake one biscuit and then if he was still hungry he had to have bread and butter and uh, the correspondent to Armand pa uh, Arnold Palmer described how her mother would come up to the nursery when she was being served her tea after school and have a drink a cup of tea with her so mm. I think these kind of comforting mm. nursery associations go with and that mm. that's a kind of cult cultural memory that gets left over and so afternoon tea we all have a kind of very rosy sense of an afternoon tea don't we it's sort of slightly romantic we're sitting in the garden drinking and then cream tea is the kind of ultimate the pinnacle of that nostalgic form of afternoon tea that we mm -hmm. might eat so I think you're you're quite right it's sort of got it carries a kind of cultural weight and those cultural associations are passed down through the generations we're not mm -hmm. even really sure where those feelings of nostalgia come from I think anymore but it's sort of in the air we breathe it in books and films and experiences that we have yeah, absolutely absolutely it just it makes you think about you know i don't know ratty and mole in wind in the willows having yes. buttered toast and that sort of thing yes. and you've just reminded me i have a friend who she um runs her family home it's a beautiful elizabethan house near lincoln called doddington hall with an amazing farm shop and cafe and so on but during all the lockdowns or you know, in between the lockdowns rather, she said they could not keep pace with serving afternoon cream teas outside <laughs> because everybody just, you know, we were so, you know, everybody was lonely, unhappy, miserable, frightened, and to come to somewhere beautiful and eat afternoon tea. I mean, I think they had to buy you know, numerous more cake stands to kind of keep pace with demand. And actually, I don't think the demand has gone away. 
you know, it's not just sweet things, it's savory as well. And it's always a little mini celebration. And what we try to do is give a twist so that it's not just the ordinary, it takes it into the extraordinary. And um, because of the nostalgia as well, there'll be sort of fresh and surprising little things like you might find a little tiny rice pudding with amarino chili, cherries or a, a blackberry and lavender macaroon uh, alongside the traditional cross-off cucumber sandwiches. <laughs> but always there's that little sort of celebration and the beauty of it. And it's amazing if you serve it with fine bone china and um, maybe with something sparkling with it, like a, 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 an English sort of uh, sparkling wine. I mean, I think we do ours with um, uh, a vineyard in Sussex so that there's that little bit of sparkle also with the, with the, with the dishes that we serve. Um, but we, we've also designed the china as well. So, in fact, what you're drinking from suddenly makes it so important. And the teas as well. Uh, I mean, normally it would just be uh, a breakfast tea or Earl Grey, but now there are so many other choices and wonderful alternatives like a green tea or a jasmine tea. And we've got a mythical creatures tea, which goes with the tea service, which is designed to go with it. And I mean, that's exotic, like with oolong, sunflower blossom, cornflower blossom, them and a touch of ripe green mango. So all those things just make it into a treat. And, you know, it's something that that ladies love to do. You know, I just love going. With, I loved going with my mother and my new little babies when they were born for afternoon tea. I mean, I felt as if I'd somehow arrived as a, as a woman. But at the same time, I think men just love that little sort of sweetness. And they're quite prepared to be sort of almost not as aggressive for a moment. And then suddenly it's that moment of enjoyment what the way you described it is so reminiscent of that that early pleasure that women took in the 17th and 18th century in sitting around their tea table presiding over their tea which they kept in a you know they had all kinds of lovely flavors of sort of at that point it would have been um, mainly green Chinese tea but some black teas as well from China or from China and then they'd keep it all locked in the caddy which only they would have um, the key to kept on a string around their neck or dress on their on their in their purses and um, then there would be this beautiful fine bone china imported all the way from from Canton so this sort of exotic far away sense of sort of real and they took real pleasure in it and so often you know there were certain ladies who would kind of decorate their entire rooms in the, all the fashions of chinoiserie and so on so it's sort of mm. we're carrying a kind of reminiscence of that pleasure that we took in those in that early introduction of tea in the way that you described it. And, you know, the thing is that it's so, it just goes on and on. We were just asked recently to design a, a tea service uh, for Andrew Lloyd Webber's um, Theatre Royal Drury Lane. And, you know, that was such a wonderful thing to do because it, we called it mythical characters because we discovered there'd been three previous major refurbishments um, in, by Charles II, George III and George IV. And then we looked up the different characters that had performed on the stage 
engage. And around the teacups, we put uh, the wonderful archival costume drawings that, that were done at that time. There's that sort of grandness of coming into a most beautiful sort of tea room, which we're all very rather nostalgic about. <laughs> Thank goodness. <laughs> well, I think, you know, we, we need visual beauty as much as we need the sort of the gastronomic beauty, don't we? I mean, Kimberly, what are your thoughts on that about how how important the sort of the china, the lovely layered cake stand, how, how significant is that in our appreciation and enjoyment? I think it's really important. And actually, when we were talking about how the demand for cream teas went up in between the lockdowns, um, there's a real we have a kind of understanding as to why that would be and it's one of the things when we have limited access to pleasure one of the few pleasures that is still available is often food um one of the few affordable pleasures one of the few things that we have control over particularly during the lockdown when there we had very limited control over what we could do was to have something sweet, have something nice, and we have the psychological um, associations with that. And then when you have something beautiful, it has the opportunity that the to transport you to somewhere else. Um, it can take you away from the mundane or the everyday, the things that you see, you know, we spent most of our lockdown in you know, our own spare bedrooms doing workouts and homeschooling and things like that. But to have access to something beauty, it's beautiful, can take you away somewhere else. And it's a moment of respite, I think. We're very visual, you know, a huge part of the, the human brain is actually dedicated to the visual cortex, information that's coming in through our eyes and making sense of it and um, translating that. So we're hugely visual creatures. So beauty is, is really important um, to our psychological well-being, I think. I thought what was so interesting was that I found that when I was at home, I didn't want to forget about the sort of cultural calendar or, or events. And so by making a cake and making it look like a hat for Ascot or, I mean, doing <laughs> mad things like that, um, or, you know, sort of bringing in something for Wimbledon or the Chelsea Flower Show within, I mean, that the wonderful thing is that with a cake and something sweet like that, you can do something madly off key. And it doesn't matter if it looks looks totally professional or not, actually. It's, it's whether it makes you smile and, and the, the creativity within it. I think you're right. And I called them anchors of normality because particularly, again, during the lockdown, there, was, there, was no, there were no markers of the passing of time. Nobody knew what day it was. Everything felt the same. And it felt very disorienting. And I was encouraging my patients and also the people that I kind of speak to on social media to have these markers of of no, the normal passing of time to keep some sense of a routine just so that your brain had some level of predictability because without predictability we become very very anxious and so being able to mark what would have been the normal um, moments in the year I think is is important and was probably quite a helpful strategy for you. Yes, that makes complete sense to me because I was I was away from everything that was familiar to me because I was in London caring for my mother. And I remember saying to my brother, who's also uh, uh, with me, that you know we have to create a routine because otherwise mm -hmm. we'll completely lose our minds. And I was really mm -hmm. strict about it. And, and actually having something at tea time was part of that. Kit, I just wanted to ask you, with your, your wonderful empire of hotels and, and for those of you, um, well, 
uh, Lizzie and Kimberly, if you don't know Kit's incredible portfolio of hotels, which uh, straddles both London and New York, they are glorious. Kit, you are a, you're as a magician of creating beautiful environments, but so original and enfolding and uplifting. But tell me how Americans respond to this funny eccentricity of the British afternoon tea or cream tea. Do they love it? Well, they've taken to it like sort of Donald Duck to water. <laughs> <laughs> they absolutely love it. And I mean, they're into the novelty, I think, in a way of it. So, you know, when Harry Potter arrives, the uh, Harry Potter tea or something like that um, immediately uh, appeals to them. And um, that, that I, I love I love the Americans because they're so open to, to new ideas and to wanting to do different things, uh, but in their sort of mad, rather sort of Hollywood way, in a way which uh, which never seems permanent. Everything just seems much more transient in the way that they do things. Ah, let's do this. But in fact, the afternoon tea is something which I think they've embraced. Uh, not as I mean, they still don't do Sunday lunches, but afternoon teas they really love. You find quite a lot of people commenting on food in the 19th and early 20th centuries who claim that afternoon tea is the one meal that the British have taken around the world. That's sort of, you know, our mm. reputation for, for fine dining is not particularly um, high. In I other think countries. it's the chip. I think the chip <laughs> is the only other thing. Really. But, but English, bre English breakfast, but, but afternoon tea, certainly in India, if you, you know, I go to India quite often and, um, Absolutely, afternoon tea is something you get served in middle-class homes. Uh, you don't tend to get uh, clotted cream and scones, unfortunately. <laughs> you get uh, you get uh, little samosas and nice little biscuits and quite a lot of savoury things. But afternoon tea certainly becomes an institution throughout India. I wouldn't be surprised if um, if it is in certain parts of Africa as well. <laughs> so our, I think, you know, really the British Empire spreads this concept of afternoon tea quite widely as well. And you see that in early American cookbooks. So obviously the early English settlers in America, they take all the recipes with them um, for all the kinds of foods and cakes and so on and biscuits and scone breads and what have you that they would have made in 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 England and take them over to America so there's a seed in that early content uh, contact and and uh, interaction as well we don't really see things like samovars now do we because at one time that was that was such a sort of big thing and it always sounded so exotic I mean I don't know if it was originally Russian or wherever it was from but um, I love that idea of a sort of lovely copper or silver samovar with a little sort of thing for the hot water. Yeah, that's wonderful. I mean, that's definitely part of a sort of um, Eastern European Russian tradition. That's their own, no, no, their own tradition of tea, obviously coming from their their own interactions with um, uh, tea coming across the, 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 the southern borders and so on. So yes, I think the British must have picked that up when they, when they traveled there and brought it back. But no, I haven't, I've never seen the samovar in Britain. I've seen mm. pictures of them. 
in paintings. <laughs> well, in there's an opportunity for somebody. Very sadly, <laughs> we are just about to run out of time. Thank you all so much. I have learned so much and I feel really joyful, almost as if I have enjoyed a cream tea. But I think before before we finish, we're just going to let's just have that do that uh, a survey of that time honoured conundrum. <laughs> uh, Kimberly, jam or cream first on your scone? I, I think I do treat it like butter. So it's cream first for me and then jam. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I like to put jam on first because I can put much more clotted cream on the top. <laughs> I'm <laughs> with you. Greed. <laughs> it's marvellous, isn't it? And what about you, Lizzie? I'm afraid I do, I'm not a traditionalist. I, I do either, whatever happens to. <laughs> but I do tend to think of the clotted cream more as butter, though. So probably yes. I would instinctively put it on first, but I, I'll do either. I'm not, I'm not a stickler. I can hear the monocles dropping into the marmalade <laughs> as we speak. <laughs> but I was also just wishing that we were all in the same space in a beautiful mm. little, you know, boudoir with our gorgeous porcelain cups of tea having something delicious together. What a marvellous trio of ladies you are. So much knowledge. And thank you for sharing all that joyful information with all of us um, in advance of National Cream Tea Day. My pleasure. Thank you. With pleasure. You're listening to Bread and Butter with Caroline Kenyon. To find out more about Food FM and our content, go to foodfmradio.com.